It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our very good friends at Alumni Hall. I will be in the Windy City this weekend, guys, in Chicago, and you guys know how I roll. I've always got to be rocking my Georgia gear, got to be rocking that G, right? Got to represent everywhere I go, and of course, Alumni Hall is who I turn to to help me do exactly that. And this time of year in Chicago, the weather can vary a little bit. I think when I get up there Thursday night, it's going to be like mid-50s. Saturday, it's going to be high 60s, Sunday, mid 70s. So, so the weather is going to be a little bit all over the place, but it's all good because the Alumni Hall has got me covered, guys. I've got a thin Georgia hoodie. I love these like thin like, jersey hoodies. They're basically just like the thin long sleeve shirts just with a hood on them. And when you're lacking a little something up there on the top of your head like I am, those hoods come in real handy, especially when you're in Chicago when things can get a little windy. I actually also just picked up a new full zip hoodie for when things get maybe a little bit chillier late at night, so I'll be covered there. And of course, when things get a little warmer, I've got my new Nike Golf Vintage Polos, got my Johnny O Polos. I'm ready to go, guys. Whatever the weather, no worries. Alumni Hall has got me covered, and they will have you guys covered as well. All you have to do is stop in in-store inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center or online at alumnihall.com because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldog shop. As you guys know, I am your host, Tyler, and I don't want to call this episode an emergency podcast. I don't think it quite rises to that level, but it is another one of these episodes where I have to call an audible here kind of on the fly because, yes, there is more breaking news on the Georgia football front, and we've just got to talk about it today. We've got to cover it today while it's hot, while it's fresh, while you guys care. I don't want to put it off till next week when I get back from Chicago. It'll be old news by then. Don't want to wait. Got to do it now. Unfortunately, Curtis and I did record the episode that we, that I was going to post today. We recorded that last night, and we had a lot of fun doing that because it was the SEC East win total show. And you guys know, I, I've been known to lay down a bet or two, especially these win total bets. I think it's a lot of fun. It gives you a team to follow all throughout the season outside of Georgia. It kind of gives you a vested interest in some of these teams, and it's fun to just like predict things, to see if, if you can actually nail what these teams are going to do, like what their records are ultimately going to end up being. 
So that episode was a lot of fun to record, and I had been waiting to do that show for like two weeks since those wind tunnels first came out a couple of weeks ago. But man, all these things, all these developments that we've got to cover immediately, they keep popping up. So we've had to push back the wind tunnel episodes, which is one of those things that you can push back. You can do that at any point during the off season. But we had to push those back, and uh, I guess we're going to, have to push it back yet again. No worries, we'll have that for you first thing next week, barring, of course. Any unforeseen breaking news that hits over the weekend while I'm out of town that we got to cover when we get back. So we'll see what happens. If it's good breaking news, hey, I'm all about that. But regardless, we will get the Wind Tunnels episodes out to you very quickly, as soon as we possibly can, as early as the first episode of next week. But today, guys, there are actually a couple of different news items that I felt compelled to jump on here and discuss tonight on the podcast. And we, we got to open, of course with the news that both Georgia and Florida have exercised their option to extend the Georgia-Florida series in Jacksonville for another two seasons. If you guys remember, I think it was last week when we did the Jacksonville debate episode, I told you guys on that episode, I told you a couple of months ago that we were going to know at least the immediate fate of the Georgia-Florida game in Jacksonville by late May or early July because the current contract stipulated that we had to let the city of Jacksonville know by June 30th whether or not we were going to pick up that option, exercise that two-year option, and keep the game in Jacksonville at least through 2025, which is exactly what we did. And just a few technical things here. Obviously, I've had a lot of questions about this over the course of today. And there, there seems to be at least on some level some sort of misunderstanding here. This is not a new contract. It's not a new deal. The existing contract that we've been operating under was signed literally just days before the game in Jacksonville in 2021. And that deal, which significantly increased our financial compensation, was for two years, 2022-2023, with the option to extend the deal for another two seasons if both schools would agree to do so. So this season, 2023, would have been the final year in Jacksonville with this contract unless either A, a new contract was reached, or B, we exercised the option to pick up the two-year extension, which is ultimately what happened. So the bigger question here is, what does this mean? What does this mean for the future of the Georgia-Florida series in Jacksonville. Well, all it means right now is that this game will be played in Jacksonville for two more seasons after this year, at least through 2025. That's all that is guaranteed as we sit here right now. This is a very temporary solution to the question of where this game should be played, which more or less just buys both schools' time to A, further investigate what they want to do about this series. Do they want to keep it in Jacksonville? Do they want to move to other neutral sites? Do they want to go home and home? It allows them to punt that decision just a couple of years down the road. And I do think that is actually a smart move because the great unknown here is what is going to happen to the SEC schedule. Are we going to go to a nine-game schedule or are we going to stay with an eight-game schedule? I think that decision will have an outsized impact on ultimately what both Georgia and Florida decide to do with their annual rivalry game long-term. 
Because if we go to a nine-game schedule, which is still a very realistic possibility, I've heard more chatter around an eight-game schedule recently. For the longest time, I, I had heard nine games was was the direction everything was kind of trending in. More recently, what I've what I've come to hear is that the eight-game idea is gaining more traction for a variety of reasons. As we discussed last week, you know, there's the the lower tier SEC teams that don't traditionally win at the highest level aren't traditional blue bloods. They never really were keen on a nine game schedule in the first place because that means it's going to be more difficult for them to make a bowl game because they have another SEC game and those are more difficult to win than playing like I don't know a FCS school or a G5 school even. So those programs like Mississippi State, Vanderbilt, they've never really been in favor of a nine game conference schedule. It was the big boys that had been in favor of that, like Georgia, Alabama, LSU, like those programs. But what has kind of turned some of them against the nine-game schedule are the three permanent rivals that some of these schools are being matched with. Schools like Alabama are raising serious issues behind the scenes regarding those three permanent rivals, saying it's not fair, it's not equitable. But anyway, let's just say... For, for argument's sake, let's say we go to a nine-game schedule. We don't know. Like, we don't know now. We'll, we'll probably find out by early June because we have SEC spring meetings that I think start May 30th, and I have a very strong feeling, it's actually a strong likelihood, that there will be some sort of announcement on the future format of the SEC schedule once the Texas and Oklahoma are officially added to the conference. There's not really much more time for them to push that issue further down the line. they got to make a decision now because they got to start putting schedules together. And if we go to a nine-game schedule and we keep the Georgia-Florida game in Jacksonville, what that does is it severely hampers your ability, Georgia and Florida, to go out and schedule high-profile non-conference games against other Power 5 teams where you would have to play a home-and-home series, which personally, that's how I think these games should be played. I'm not a big fan of most neutral side games. The Jacksonville game is obviously different. There's tradition attached to it. These one-off games in, in Atlanta and Orlando and in Dallas, like I, I have no time for those. I, don't, I have no interest in those. But it really does limit our ability to go out, or at least it limits our flexibility in going out and scheduling some of those games. There's one game that we know will not go away is a Georgia Tech game. Now, that's an argument for another day, whether you think that we should keep that game or not. I can just tell you guys, it's not going away. It's not going to happen. And with a nine-game conference format, what that means, think nine, nine is, an, is an odd number, right? So that means one year, you're going to have five SEC home games and four SEC road games. The next year, you would have only four SEC home games and five SEC road games. Now, there's no way that they would require us to count a game in Jacksonville as one of our designated home games, which we have to do every every other year. One year, it's designated as a road game. One year, it's designated as one of our home games. Like last year, it was designated as a home game for us. This year, it's designated as a road game for us. That's why we have four SEC home games and not only three like we had last year. So that's not going to happen. What they would do if we kept it in Jacksonville is the years that we would be slated to have five SEC home games, that would be the year for us that the game in Jacksonville would count as a home game. So what that means is that we would never have five SEC home games like other schools would, all the other schools except for Georgia and Florida. And that's fine because, you know, you make up the revenue by having the game in a neutral site because, as we talked about last week, 
by playing the game in Jacksonville, we have this financial imperative that we basically, like playing it, playing in game in Jacksonville over two years, over a two year span, we make about $9 million. Playing it over a two year span, home and home, where we only get one home game, because that's the only gate we get, we would make about four and a half million dollars. Since we get to split the gate in Jacksonville every year, plus the city of Jacksonville pays us to come, they pay us $1.25 million a year right now to, to come play the game in Jacksonville, we make about $9 million over the course of two years. So you're talking about a four and a half to $5 million differential. So that's not really the part that concerns me. The part that concerns me is what it does to our ability to schedule some of those big time non-conference power five games that I personally really enjoy. And I think the University of Georgia should be playing those games. And by the way, so does Kirby Smart because we have a ton of them scheduled for the next 10 years out into the future. We've got UCLA, we've got Florida State, we've got Ohio State, we've got Louisville, we've got all these games scheduled with these non-conference opponents all the way out 10, 15 years into the future. But what happens to those games if we go to a nine-game conference schedule and we keep the game in Jacksonville? Because now, let's okay, again, that's the years that we have five home games means we really only have four SEC home games because one of them would count as a home game in Jacksonville, right? And what if that year where we are scheduled to have five SEC home games happens to also be the year where we play on the road in Atlanta against Georgia Tech? That would leave us with absolutely no choice but to schedule those other two non-conference games that you get, because in in a nine-game schedule, a nine-game conference schedule, you only have three non-conference games. You have Tech and then two more. If the year that we were slated to have five SEC home games was also the year that we played in Atlanta against Tech, that means we would absolutely have to have those other two non-conference games at home, which just makes it a lot more difficult to go out there and schedule these non-conference Power Five games. And what about the games that we already have scheduled? The SEC can't take it into consideration every single non-conference game that all these teams, all 16 teams that are going to be in the SEC have scheduled out 10, 15 years down the road. We very well could have to cancel a lot of those games. It just takes away the flexibility that we would have to schedule those games. And some of you might not care about that, but personally, I do. Those of you who have been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know my feelings when it comes to buy games, when you're playing the the Baby Seals, the Little Sisters of the Poor. You know how I feel about those games. I made that very, very clear. I think that the University of Georgia should be playing Power 5 teams. Maybe one of those games a year, maybe one buy game a year, but by and large, I think most, all Power 5 teams honestly should be playing Power 5 teams, maybe having one buy game. If I had my way, if I was commissioner of college football, that's how it would work. But no one really cares what I think, but I, I would personally like to be able to continue to play those games, and if we go to a nine-game conference schedule and keep the game in Jacksonville, it really, really, really cuts into our ability to do those things, and that's certainly something that our administration on Florida's administration as well has to take into account when deciding what they want to do long-term with this game. Keep it in Jacksonville, move it home and home, move it to other neutral sites. What do you want to do with it? You have to, that's a big factor in all this, and honestly... We don't know what's going to happen with the, with the schedule, eight or nine games. I Honestly, I don't think that the coaches in the SEC really know right now either. They want to get down there in Destin at the SEC meetings and finally, once and for all, hammer this out. And I think it could still go either way. So I think pushing this decision down the road for two more years, exercising that option, allows us to get more information to operate off of so that we can make the best decision for our university and our football program moving forward when it comes to where to play this football game. But again, at the very least, we do now know that this game will continue to be played in Jacksonville for three more years this year and then two more years after that through the 2025 season, which I am very excited about. You guys know if you listened to the episode last week, 
I have, over the years, kind of changed my tune on where I want this game to be played. I'm not going to rehash all that. You can go back and check that episode out. I don't want to bore you with the same conversation that I just had last week. But I do want to keep this game in Jacksonville. That's where I am right now on it. And so I'm excited about it. While at the same time, I also fully understand that this is a very short-term solution. This is this is not any guarantee of a long-term fix and long-term agreement on where this game is going to be played and, and any sort of agreement that this game will continue to be played in Jacksonville. And to further that point, I do want to read you guys a couple of quotes here from Josh Brooks, our athletic director, and Scott Strickland, who is Florida's athletic director, not our baseball coach, same name, different guy. But here is what Josh Brooks had to say in his statement on the decision to exercise the two-year option to keep this game in Jacksonville through 2025. He said, quote, we are pleased with the decision to exercise the option that will keep the game in Jacksonville for 2024 and 2025. We look forward to discussions that I'm sure will continue over the next couple of years, exploring all of the options for 2026 and beyond. We continue to be appreciative of the working relationship we have with the University of Florida and the city of Jacksonville. I don't know about you guys, but as far as I'm concerned, that certainly did not sound like a ringing endorsement of keeping this game in Jacksonville long term. He certainly didn't say that it wouldn't stay in Jacksonville, but Brooks very clearly avoided committing to continuing the series in Jacksonville beyond 2025, which again leads me to believe that this is a way for them to just gather more information so they can make a better decision for what they want to do long-term with this game. And, and Scott Strickland kind of echoed those those sentiments in his his very short, very brief statement on the issue. So here's what Scott Strickland, Florida's athletic director, had to say. He said, quote, The city of Jacksonville has been a historic host for one of the great rivalry games in all of college football. We are excited to have the game in Jacksonville for another two seasons. So again, like Brooks, that's a pretty ambiguous statement. Read between the lines there, and what both athletic directors are saying is, yeah, cool. We're keeping the game in, in Jacksonville for two more years. And after that, we'll see. So if you're like me and you're excited to keep this game in Jacksonville for at least two more years, celebrate these next three years, but don't hold your breath moving forward. We, there's still a lot to play out. It's a very complex issue, very thorny issue, and we'll see how it plays out down the road. But we can at least take a deep breath. At least those of you who want to keep the game in Jacksonville, you can take a deep breath for now before all the speculation starts up again, probably very quickly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. 
The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. All right, guys, moving on here. Real quickly, I do want to touch on what I believe is a big-time commitment that we got today from Titan Jaden Riddell. Earlier in the week, we talked about how we picked up a, a commitment from another Titan, Colton Heinrich, who I think is a really good player. But guys, Jaden Riddell is on another level. I'm really excited about Heinrich. I'm, I'm not trying to down him at all whatsoever. Guys, going to be a good player for us. But Jaden Riddell is legit, guys. I mean, he's the number one tight end in the country, according to On3. He's a top 50 player nationally in the composite. The composite has him as the number two tight end in the country. Again, On3 has him at number one. But whatever you want to want to say, like number one, number two, number three tight end in the country, he's certainly up there. When I watch this guy play, I think he's the best tight end in the country. I know Landon Thomas is a guy that we had committed for a while from Colquitt County. He decommitted. He's gone to Florida State. And that guy is really, really good. I think it's between him and Riddell, the number one and number two tight in the country. And we're splitting hairs there. Riddell's a little bit bigger and thicker, whereas Thomas is, is a little bit more elusive in space, a little twitchier of an athlete. But Riddell is a big-time athlete in his own right, guys. 6'4", 6'5", 230, 235 pounds. And this dude has big time receiver skills okay he basically a lot of these big time tight ends what they do is they basically play receiver at the high school level because they're more often than not the best pass catcher on their team so what do you do you just put them out there then you throw them balls like you don't need them to block out there and just catch passes and that's really what he does but Riddell is going to be a problem for SEC defenders for a number of years once he gets to college probably three years I think he's that kind of guy but if you look at his skill set I mean he's a guy that I, I think he projects more as a, a guy who can flex out but I think he can also you know he's a guy that can play in the slot he can play outside he can play in line as well now that's some that's an area where he's got to show me a little bit more because I don't you don't really see him do that much on tape but as a pass catcher this is a guy that has extraordinarily strong hands he understands body positioning and how to use his big body to fend off defenders He's really athletic, has great leaping ability, and is just one of those guys that has a knack for coming down with a contested catch. And if you watch him on some of his seven-on-seven clips, the guy is uncoverable. I and mean, we're talking about some of the best DBs in the country cannot cover him. Certainly cannot cover him one-on-one. Can't really cover when he's double-teamed. In some cases, they were having trouble covering the guy when he was triple-teamed. So he is a big-time player, and he's an absolute big-time get for Kirby Smart, for Todd Hartley, and this Georgia 2024 recruiting class. Speaking of Todd Hartley, guys, can we just take a minute and bow before the man? At this point, it's borderline unbelievable what he's able to do class after class. The guy simply does not miss. He does not miss on guys. All he does is bring in number one, number two tight ends in the country. That's what this guy does. And I know some of the haters out there would point to Colton Heinrich, the guy that committed from Cardinal Gibbons, earlier in the week and say, well, he's number 600 in the country. Like, what are you talking about? Like, we're having to, Georgia's having to resort to getting that kind of guy? Dude, just watch the film, okay? Watch the film and trust in Todd Hartley. If Todd Hartley identifies a tight end as a guy that he wants on his roster, why would we not trust him at this point? Like, what has the man done to give us any possible reason to doubt him? And like I said earlier in the week, don't just be beholden to the rankings, guys. Turn on the tape, watch it, make up your own minds. And personally, if you know football, I think you'll like what you see when you turn on the tape of Colton Heinrich. And if you haven't already, turn on the tape of Jaden Riddell, and I 
dare you to not be blown away by what you see. But Heinrich and Riddell are not the only two prospects that we added to our 2024 class this week. We also added an offensive tackle, Marcus Harrison, who is a big dude. You guys remember Ben Cleveland, right? Of course, we all remember Ben Cleveland, eating squirrels, all that, you know, that good stuff. Because who doesn't, right? But we all remember Ben Cleveland just a couple years back, right? Marcus Harrison reminds me a lot of Ben in terms of his size, and not just his size, but how he's built, his physical makeup. He's 6'7", 6'8", depending on what you look at, between somewhere between 330 and 350 pounds, depending on what recruiting service you look at. And you listen to his coach talk, he calls him like, he says he's like 350 pounds. 247 has him at 335 or 336, somewhere in that range. But when you look at the guy, you see pictures of him. He's very similar to Cleveland in that he has that big barrel chest that is far bigger than his gut. Like he looks pretty svelte around the waist. Like you're like, you look at me like that dude weighs 350 odd pounds. What? Like he, he doesn't look like he has a, an inch of fat on him. Well, he's a big dude, but he's got like just this massive, massive chest, just like Ben did. So this guy, it, he fits the mold of what we're moving towards on the offensive line. We, we clearly are trying to get bigger on the offensive line and under Stacey Searles. At least that seems to be the trend. And look, guys, Harrison's another one of these guys that right now is ranked in the 600s. He's only a three-star prospect. According to 247 Composite, he's the number 49 offensive tackle in the country, number 607 nationally. He's out of New York. There's not a ton of big-time prospects in New York. He's actually from Iowa. He's a, I mean, that fits, right? I mean, how I describe him as big, like, corn-fed, barrel-chested Iowan. Like, that's that's who this guy is. Like, according to his coach, his long-term goal after football is to go back and, and uh, take over his grandfather's farm. That's what this guy wants to do. That's, that's the kind of player we're talking about here. But I'll go back to what I have been saying about this Georgia coaching staff. These guys just evaluate at a level that no one else in the country is evaluating. And I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we hit on every single guy that we evaluate. Every coaching staff misses on some guys here and there. But we are hitting at a far higher rate than most of these other schools are, especially when it comes to identifying these guys when they come to campus, when they work out for you, which is what he did. He was down here. He's one of these guys that was down here last weekend for the scavenger hunt. So talk about how that pays dividends and how big of a deal it is. How many commitments have we already gotten off the scavenger hunt? We got Colton Heinrich, we got Jaden Riddell, we got Marcus Harrison. And trust me, guys, there are a couple other names behind the scenes that have committed silently to us and we're just waiting on them to go public. It'll be, it'll be public here in the next couple of weeks, month or so. So if you're one of those guys that scoffs at the idea of a scavenger hunt, you might want to rethink that. But I do think Harrison is a guy that, you know, now that he's committed to Georgia and he's thanks him a little bit more of a high-profile recruit, more eyes on him, more attention's paid to him. I think some of these recruiting writers who are responsible for rings, just like they did with Nitro Tuggle, are going to go back. They're going to look at his tape again. They're going to reevaluate him. And I have a strong inkling that he will move up the rankings. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily know if he's like a, a top, 200, 250 guy. Maybe he is. Offensive linemen are by far the most difficult position, in my opinion, to evaluate because they're just usually so much bigger and stronger than everyone they play against. If you're like even being considered as a power five lineman, that, you know, they just dominate everybody. So it's really hard to tell. You got to try to like peel back the layers. You got to look at like ankle bends. You've got to look at flexibility. You got to look at kick step, 
footwork, punch, those kind of things. And when I watch Harrison play, like you see a very, very strong punch. You see a guy that has good footwork. Now, he's listed as a left tackle. I, I think he can maybe play out there. I think he has good enough length to do that. I think maybe right tackle might be like long-term a better fit for him. But I think if he needed to, he could play left tackle. The problem in this class is, guys, there's very few big-time linemen in this class, especially those edge linemen. The, the tackles, there's not a ton of it. It's, it all, all around the country, not just Georgia, but around the country, it's just one of those years where randomly we're kind of down when it comes to offensive linemen nationally. And with those three commitments so far this week with Heinrich, Riddell, and now Harrison, the Georgia Bulldogs have now pulled away from the rest of the country with the number one overall recruiting class. Now, guys, it is late May. It is very early. These things are certainly apt to change. But with the way that we are recruiting right now, and I'm just telling you some of the big time names that we are very much contention for that we actually lead for or some of those names that we might actually have as silent commits you know behind the scenes it's going to be very difficult for another team to jump up and take that number one slot in this 2024 recruiting class I just don't see it happening guys right now we are 20 points ahead of the next closest team which is Michigan right now we actually have one less commitment than them and we're still 20 points ahead of them our average recruiting ranking is 94.14 which is the highest among all teams, at least here as I'm looking through, at least all the teams in the top 15. And that's with us taking a punter last week as well, which, you know, punters and kickers are never more than two stars. So you have a punter or kicker in your class, that's going to drop your average because just by the nature of things, those guys aren't very highly rated. So I'm going to go ahead and say it right now, guys, and this is not really going on a limb. I think it's pretty obvious at this point. Sitting here on May 24th, I'm going to go ahead and say it. We are absolutely going to have the number one overall recruiting class in the 2024 cycle, and we have a chance. Now, this is this is going on a limb, but it's certainly possible. If you look at where we are right now at 270 with 16 commitments, it depends on how many commits we're going to take. Like How much room do we have for these guys with attrition? Like How is that going to work out? But we have a very legitimate shot to break the record for the most highly ranked recruiting class in the history of college football recruiting, at least since it's actually been measured by these recruiting services. A&M, two years ago, has the, has the highest total right now. They are the standard. They had 30 commits that year with a 333.13 overall rating. We're at 270 right now with 16 commits. We certainly have a shot to surpass the number. I'm not going to call it a done deal, but it's also certainly not out of the question. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com All right, guys, last thing that I want to talk about today, and I do not relish having to discuss this on this podcast, but it's something that I think needs to be addressed because I've gotten a lot of questions about it, and there was a lot of conversation about it on social media today. And again, I did have quite a few of you reach out to me and ask my take on this. So I thought this is something that I should get on here and address on the podcast so all of you could hear my take on this. And no one cares what I say. I mean, I'm just some dude, right? Like, I I don't matter. I, I fully understand this, but... If you guys haven't seen by now, which I'm sure almost all of you have, we had another Georgia football player arrested for speeding and reckless driving. And I've got to admit, this one really surprised me. 
I was very surprised to see that it was Marcus Roseme, Jack Saint. That one got me because this is a guy who has been a, a leader on our team, a really good locker room presence, clubhouse kind of guy, a very selfless player on the fields and everything that's asked of him and hasn't really been a spotlight type guy, fought back from a devastating injury. A guy that has been the antithesis of the stereotypical diva wide receiver his entire career here at Georgia. He was not a guy that I thought I would be reading about making a mistake like this. And calling a mistake is probably pretty light here. I mean, this is, I mean, it's a criminal act is, is, is what he did. I mean, and like I know some of you, he, so he, there's two sides to this, right? There's there's some people that are calling for him to be kicked off the team. Like we got to make an example of this guy. Enough's enough. I, some way, somehow our team's going to get the message. Whatever Kirby's saying, whatever he's doing, it's not getting through. You got to make an example of this guy, send a message to the team. That's one extreme. The other extreme is like, Oh man, just this, the Athens-Clark County Police again. They're after the Georgia players. They're singling these guys out. They're targeting them. I mean, why did this guy get arrested for a speeding ticket? No one else will get arrested. They're clearly targeting our guys. So there's two extremes to this. And I guess I fall somewhere in the middle, but I do want to make something very clear. This kind of behavior, this conduct, these actions outrage me. And I do not use that term lightly. I am legitimately outraged by this kind of behavior, by these kind of decisions. And if this was anybody else outside of a Georgia football player, I would 100% be calling for their arrest. Like if this was just some random guy that read about in a paper and I read this guy wasn't arrested, I'd be like, what are we doing? How are you not arresting this guy? Because what Marcus did was jeopardize the lives of other people around him. Because if you guys haven't seen the details, here's what it was. And I know you hear speeding, like, oh my God, he got arrested for a speeding ticket. There's way more to it than that, guys. So he was on Atlanta Highway. Most of you have been to Athens. You know what I'm talking about when we talk about Atlanta Highway. The speed limit there is 45 miles an hour, guys. And I actually hate, I hate going to Atlanta Highway. I try very hard to avoid that at all, if at all possible. I try not to go over there because it's just crowded. It's busy. There's traffic. And I, I just don't like it. I don't like going over there. And I really have no need to usually. So I, I try to stay away from it. But he was on Atlanta Highway, a 45-mile-an-hour speed zone going 90 when the police caught him on radar. So we know he was going at least 90. He might have been going higher than that at some point, but we know at least 90. And that was at 3.18 p.m. on Tuesday. Guys, at that time of day on Atlanta Highway, I don't care what day of the week, it is going to be busy. There are going to be a lot of people out there. So if you are somebody who's going 90 miles an hour, and according to police, he was also weaving in and out of traffic. It wasn't just speeding. He was going in and out of traffic. If you are doing that, you are putting the lives of other people at risk. I mean, honestly, who the hell do you think you are? What gives you the right to do that? Your thrill ride is more important potentially than someone else's life or heck, even your own life. But the part that outrages me is what you are potentially doing to other people. What gives you the right to put other people at risk? And I'm not even talking about the the aspect of this that one of your teammates was tragically killed in an accident that involved heavy, heavy speeding and one of your other teammates was charged with multiple crimes in association with that incident, and it cost him millions of dollars in the NFL draft. He very easily could have gone number one overall, still goes in the top 10, but that cost him millions of dollars, and you're still doing that. That's just the dumb part. That's just you being dumb. I'm sorry. I don't like to call people dumb. I really don't like to insult people. I'm not trying to insult him. I'm just saying that is a very, very dumb decision when you know what has happened to people that you love. You know, it's one thing, it's still inexcusable, but it's one thing like, 
you know, it's never touched you. Like if you've never been impacted by that type of conduct, that type of behavior, that type of incident, but you clearly have very, very recently with a very vivid example. And you have all of your coaches doing everything they can behind the scenes to educate you guys and keep you from doing these things. And yet you still go out there and do it. It is just a horrific example of poor decision-making. But irregardless of all of that, just in isolation, whether that had ever ha- ever happened or not, the, the Devin Willett tragedy, Chandler Croy tragedy, if those had never happened, it's still, to me, an outrageous thing to be doing, going that fast, twice the speed limit, weaving in and out, in and out of traffic in a very, very busy section of town. What are you doing? Who do you think you are? And I really struggle to understand why uh, these guys continue, continue to do it. I know it's not everybody. I shouldn't say these guys, but the ones who do get caught, I, I struggle to understand how at this point you are continuing to make those decisions. I, I know you're young. I I know when you're young, you tend to feel like you're invincible and, and life, you're just out there to have fun. It's a joyride. But man, there are consequences and you've got to understand that. And, and with, again, Marcus, it just surprised me. From everything I've ever heard about this guy and what, everything I've ever known about him, he's a very mature guy. And to do something like that, it's just the height of immaturity. So yes, I am angered. I am outraged by this type of conduct. However, saying that, I'm also not ready to call for Marcus Rosemead Jack Saint to be dismissed from our football team. And here is why. Now, do I think the crime is potentially worthy of that? Yeah, I kind of do. And that's why I do somewhat struggle with this. Like if he was dismissed from the team, I wouldn't put up all too much of a fight against that that ultimately did happen. I don't know if it'll happen. I don't really think it'll happen, but if it did, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue too vociferously against that. But here's why right now, based on what I know, I would be against dismissing Marcus from the team based on these incidents. And oh, by the way, guys, this was his second speeding ticket in eight days. So if you are one of those people who are saying like, man, like the ACCPD are just targeting football players. It's two speeding tickets in eight days, guys. One of them going 90 in a 45. Uh, he's going 60 in a 40. Um, what was it back? That was actually in Florida a couple of weeks ago. But second speeding citation in eight days. But here is my thing on this. We have already had multiple players that we know of that have gotten speeding tickets or have been or get, gotten warnings from cops for for speeding, right? And now sometimes the coaches might not know about it. If a guy has gotten a warning, hasn't gotten an actual ticket, but they know about the guys who've gotten tickets. They, they should know about it. They need to be knowing about it. They need to have mechanisms in place to make sure they do know about these things so they can properly address it. But if you kick Marcus off the team for this right now, then I think you have to go back and kick every single player off the team who has gotten in trouble for speeding. At least those players who have been given speeding tickets or been arrested for speeding at a level that even comes close to the excessive levels of speed that Marcus was using. Like I get the idea of wanting to make an example and trying to send a point home to the rest of your team, but you all you also do have to think about the player here. Is it fair to the player to be the one who is the example when he did nothing different than all these other guys? who are still on the team, but he's the one that gets kicked off the team because he was the most recent one to do it. Now, maybe you want to say you waive your right to fairness when you do something as ridiculous as going 90 to 45, weaving in and out of traffic in a very busy part of Athens. Maybe, and maybe you do. Maybe you, you do waive the right to claim unfairness and this is an unjust thing. Maybe. 
but I do have a pretty strong sense of fairness and I don't feel like that would be right. Unless, big unless here, unless Kirby Smart and staff have previously established a policy following the Devin Willick Chandler LaCroix tragedy that anyone caught speeding in this manner will be dismissed from the team. If the players have been made aware of that and that is an internal team policy, then I have no issue with Marcus Rosemary Jackson being booted from the team. I have no issue with it whatsoever. But if if that policy has not been clearly stated and established and the players aren't operating under that understanding and other players before him, like, I don't know, a star like Pop Dumas Johnson, have done very similar things and are still on the team, they have not been dismissed, I do not think it is right to dismiss Marcus Rosemary Jack Saint right now. Now, saying that, I would be in favor of Kirby Smart right now, tonight. I'm recording this at 11.53 p.m. right now. Yep, burning the midnight oil trying to get this out to you tonight, guys. But even at this late hour, if I'm Kirby Smart, I'm calling a team meeting right now. I'm texting. I'm calling everybody saying, get your butts over here to butt smear. We got a team meeting. And I would lay down the law right now, and I would establish a zero-tolerance policy for speeding. For speeding and reckless driving. The weaving in and out of lanes, putting other people's lives at risk, putting your own life at risk. That's not acceptable. That is entirely unacceptable. I would lay down the law right now, make a zero tolerance policy and say, I do not care who you are. If you are caught doing this, you are off of this football team. Because we've got to get this under control, guys. It's a safety thing for our players. It's a safety thing for the the people in Athens around them that live in the same city as these guys right now. It's also, you know, from a program perspective, you know, this narrative that Kirby Smart has lost control of his program, like that's something that that has been kind of whispered about since the Devin Willick thing. And he addressed that his opening statement in his press conference to open spring practice was about how he has not lost control of the program. He was defending the culture of his program. And I've done that too. But at some point, if this kind of garbage continues, you can't really defend the culture of the program. You can't defend Kirby Smart and say, hey, yeah, he still has control of the program. This continues to happen. And does a narrative like that eventually have some sort of recruiting ramifications? Does it hurt you on the recruiting trail to a degree? Now, we're always going to recruit well under Kirby, but do, do you miss on a guy here and there because their families aren't sure that you know they can be trusted with your coaching staff and the, the players around them? I mean, yeah, it, it certainly could. And you just don't want that kind of narrative around your program. So, I mean, that that's a very shallow way to look at it, but it is a part of this. But I do believe it's time, if that's not already been done, it is time to establish a, a zero-tolerance policy. And if not a zero-tolerance policy, a very strict policy that has very clearly defined punishments and consequences that are actually severe enough to deter this kind of conduct because it cannot continue to happen. Guys, I live in Athens and this is this is my city. I do not want guys that put my friends, my families, other people in Athens, the people that I love and care about, putting them at risk. And let me go all old man on you for a minute here, all right? get off my lawn type stuff. Look, we already have enough idiot college students in this town that our coaching staff has no control over. That's bad enough. But we do have, we should have control over these 85 guys on our team. The coaches can control that. And it's about damn time they take a hold of it. And with that, I'll step down from my old man soapbox. But all right, guys, that's all I got for today. It's pushing midnight here. I got to go to work in the morning. Got to get up early. Got to work out. You know how things go, right? So I got to get out of here. Got to get at least a little bit of sleep tonight. But I did want to jump on here and uh, touch on all this breaking news for you guys. But I hope you guys have a fantastic weekend. 
Curtis and I will be back. We've already got the episode recorded. We'll have that up for you guys. Hopefully Monday night, barring again any unforeseen breaking news that might pop over the weekend. Have a great Memorial Day weekend, guys. I'll be in Chicago repping the G. And I hope you guys have a great time doing whatever it is that you are going to be doing. But I'm Tyler. Thank you for being here. And as always, go dogs.